Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Now, we saw last week how having been in the early chapters, it seemed obsessed with numbers. Luke suddenly took a step back from talking about 3,000, 5,000, a great number were added, and picked on one individual and wrote the account of how he met with Jesus. And that was the Ethiopian eunuch. And we've also seen before how Luke uses repetition to add emphasis to certain events that he feels are important and we need to know about. And as we look at this next account, actually he does both. He once again steps back from the numbers and looks at an encounter of one individual He concentrates very much on that one man's encounter with God. And then he repeats that story twice more further on in the book to draw out the significance of it on each occasion. Now when we last came across Saul, it was in chapter 8. And it was talking about what happened just after the death of Stephen. And it said, but Paul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Now actually, those are strong words. To say that someone was actually destroying the church didn't mean that he was just giving them a bit of hassle. That's not what destroy means. When you destroy something, you rip it to shreds. You make it something from which you can't recover what you originally had. So this was not that he gave a few individuals a bit of aggravation and they had a hard week. This is that he began to systematically persecute the church in a way that it was intended it would never recover from. And then we read that what happened is many of the believers were scattered. And they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And then Luke's account carries on. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way whether men or women he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem as he neared Damascus on his journey suddenly a light came from heaven and flashed all around him he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say Saul Saul why do you persecute me Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul were speechless. 
They heard the sound, but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple called Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptised, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. One of the things we've already seen is that the Jews tended to have quite a parochial, limited vision of God's plan for the future. Now this in part stems from the fact that when you look back through the Old Testament and through that whole era, they had been God's chosen people. And everybody else, the Gentiles, weren't included in the plans that God had installed for them. In fact, often they were people who got in the way of God's plans and the nation of Israel were called to overcome. Now, some of the things that God puts in our hearts are just too big for us to get our heads around. And the fact that Jesus had died so that people from all and every nation might be saved was one of those things that the early believers were struggling to get their heads around. Because those early believers were predominantly Jews. So, if God really wanted to get the gospel, the good news about Jesus, 
to go further than Judea and Samaria, where those early believers had scattered, to reach the very ends of the earth, he needed someone different. He needed someone who didn't have that short-sighted parochial view of what God was trying to do. And do you know what? He had just the man in his sights. It was Saul. Now Saul was a Roman citizen. He'd been born in a place called Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Can I have the first map? Now you remember last week we looked at a couple of maps. Well, hopefully this one will appear shortly. Oh, when it comes on, we'll show you where Tarsus is. But it, ah, oh, okay. Here's Greece, okay. This is modern-day Turkey. There's Tarsus, okay. And Jerusalem is down here. This is Israel. Okay. So he was born in Tarsus. He had Jewish parents, and we know that he came from the tribe of Benjamin. He was well-educated, and later in Acts we're told that he had been taught by the rabbi Gamaliel. Now, he, at the time, was one of the leading members of the Sanhedrin. And so this guy actually had a very privileged education. And he was obviously a man who had been given a lot of authority. Because we read at the beginning of uh, the passage we've just looked at that he went to the high priest and asked him for letters so that if he found anyone who was following the way, they could be arrested and brought back to Jerusalem. Now, I can't imagine that that was something that they would just let anyone do. So we find Saul now, in this account, walking on the road to Damascus from Jerusalem. Here's Jerusalem. And Damascus is here in Syria, as we know it today. That is a journey of some 200 miles. So this guy is so incensed by these followers of Jesus that he has dropped what he's doing and is setting out on a journey of 200 miles on foot to go and sort them out. Now obviously he saw these Christians as a threat. He saw them as a threat to everything that he was used to. Why? Because they were preaching in the synagogues and they were seeing hundreds and thousands turn away from their traditional Jewish heritage and start to follow the teachings of Jesus. And everything that they taught was an affront to the established way of doing things. They taught about Jesus, a man. They talked about knowing him and also having a relationship with God. These were people who were used to meeting in the temple and not being allowed into the Holy of Holies, not having any personal relationship. 
They weren't concerned with the law and the Sabbath, but they were starting to talk about grace and forgiveness. And even in talking about forgiveness, well, forgiving sins is actually God's work. Who were these men who talked about giving forgiveness? And probably most scary of all, was they seemed to have the very power of God's spirit in their midst. And that was the very thing that the temple lacked. So this was an insult. It was an insult to him, to Saul. It was an insult to his way of life. And it was an insult to his God. It was blasphemy of the highest order. And it had to be stopped. And then part way through this 200 mile journey. As he got close to Damascus. His life is brought to a standstill. Like that. Why? Because he met Jesus. Now when you look at Saul's encounter, you find it has a lot in common with some other encounters in the Bible, particularly with the commission of Moses. Moses, when he stood before the burning bush, and God tells him that he has been chosen to set God's people free from slavery. And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 3. But Saul experiences three things. He sees a blinding light. He hears a voice and he recognises that his name is being called. Now he was somewhere on a road from Damascus, on the way to Damascus. He was probably in the middle of nowhere. And I think even for us today, it would get our attention if as we walked down a road in the middle of nowhere, we saw a blinding light and heard our name called by an audible voice. It certainly got his attention. Saul, confronted by the blinding light, falls to the ground. He's not going to go anywhere. Not until God's finished with him. Because he can't see. And then the voice... The voice that speaks out his name. This was not some small, still voice in the back of his mind. Because it was audible to those around. We know that because it says in verse 7, the men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but couldn't see anyone. And it calls him by name. Saul. This is going to be a personal and intimate conversation. God didn't call out, Oi, you down there, you'll do. He was called by name. Saul. Saul. His name was called twice. 
and that at the time was a method of giving emphasis. You'll find that same method of emphasis is used throughout scripture. When God called Moses in Exodus 3.2, he said, Moses, Moses. Peter, when addressing Simon in Luke 22.31, calls his name twice, Simon, Simon. When Jesus is talking about Jerusalem and wants to add emphasis to it, he says, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. In Luke 13. And even calling to God on the cross, he said, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God. God was saying, Saul, this is serious. Have I got your attention? And then having got his attention, making sure that his ear is attuned, he asks a question. Why do you persecute me? Now, it poses an interesting question. Because why would Jesus, who is part of the Trinity, part of the Godhead, who know everything, who are omniscient, why do they need to ask why Saul is persecuting them? I think they knew perfectly well why Saul was persecuting the church. But just like when we ask a child that has snatched a toy from another, why did you do that? It's nothing to do with us not knowing the underlying reasons. We know. We know why the child has switched snatched the toy. They want to play with it themselves. But what it does is it helps us apply our minds when we have to consider what is driving our actions and respond appropriately. So sometimes even though we know the answer, to ask someone why did you do it helps them focus their mind on why. Saul's response probably shows how badly shaken he is by this whole experience. Because even though he is on his way to imprison believers, he says, who are you, Lord? And the answer comes out loud and clear. I am Jesus. You know, the one you are persecuting. Here, Jesus is confirming his closeness with his followers. He's saying, if you're persecuting my church, you are persecuting me. Whatever you do to those who believe in me, you're doing to me. And there's no doubt left. Not for Saul. He knows who he's talking to. Meanwhile, in the background, Ananias is being given a mission. Go on, you go to Paul, because he is my chosen instrument to reach the Gentiles. And Ananias obeys. As a result, we see Paul is healed, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and baptised. Can you imagine turning up the following morning at the temple. 
you're meeting with the people you always meet with. But there's an air of excitement. There's something going on. And then Paul walks in. But instead of arresting people, he starts to preach Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He's risen. I met him on the road. What a Sunday morning that must have been. If we move forward to chapter 22, we find Luke repeats the account of Paul's conversion. On this occasion, Paul is standing before a crowd in Jerusalem. He says, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence. And when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, and brought up in this city under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers, and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As also the high priest and all the council can testify, I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near to Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. And then skipping on to verse 14, he carries on to tell them about his commission. Then he, he's talking about Ananias, said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptised and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. So here in Jerusalem, Paul quite quickly stirs up hostility. 
his references to the Gentiles stir up the religious parochial spirit in the crowd. And they call for his death. Jesus doesn't call us to be comfortable or parochial in our outlook. And then we see this same account again in chapter 26. This time, Paul is standing on trial before King Agrippa. His wife's there, sorry, that's King Agrippa's wife, and his counsellor. And Paul again gives an account even more persuasive than he has done before. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus in Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to anoint you as a servant and as a witness 
of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then Agrippa said, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That's why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus, that's the king's counsellor, interrupted Paul's defence. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it wasn't done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophet? Do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray, God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, that's his wife, and those sitting with him. They left the room, and while talking to one another, they said, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Now on this occasion, again, Paul was confronting something. But on this occasion, it wasn't religiosity or parochialism. It was a different enemy. It was the pagan Gentile mind. You'll notice as you read through that, the time it becomes sticky is about verse 23. And that is because he started to make reference to the resurrection of the dead. 
And that was a sticking point for the Gentile mind. His teaching on that also was the subject of some fascination when he was in Athens. And you can read about that in chapter 17, about verse 18 or so. But the pagan mind of that time gave no place at all to think about the resurrection of the dead. They gave no thought to the afterlife. And so Paul's comments in verse 23 are provoking and challenging to them. It was beginning to reveal a reality that they had no understanding of, had no knowledge of, and were unprepared for. I'll tell you what, the same can be true today. There are a great many people that have given no or little thought to the issue of what happens when they die. And when we bring them face to face with that, it can be a revelation. So here in Acts we see three times in different settings the account of the conversion of Paul. Paul is going to be instrumental in the spread of the gospel outside of the area we've already looked at. But here are some questions. Are you like Paul? Do you see your conversion as a time of commissioning by God? And if so, what has God called you to? Paul was very clear on his calling. In fact, he stood before people who accused him and he proclaimed it. He said on these other two occasions, I'm there to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what God's told me to do. And I've been faithful to that. I've started in Jerusalem. I've moved on to Judea and Samaria. And I'm off to the Gentiles. Can you, when confronted, express the calling God has put on your life that clearly? Or are you held back by parochialism? Do you really have a concept of what it means to take the gospel to Judea, to Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth? What does that mean for you? Where is your Judea? Where is your Samaria? And what are the ends of the earth for you? Where is it that God is calling you to? That might be much closer to home. It might be your partner, your family, and your next door neighbour. They might be your Judea, your Samaria, and your ends of the earth. So do you suffer with the problem of that Jewish crowd of being parochial in your outlook? Or do you struggle with having a religious spirit? Are you bound up with rules and regulations instead of understanding that it was for freedom that Christ set us free? Or are you caught up with the pagan Gentile mindset that somehow, despite everything you believe, everything you've read, the thoughts of an afterlife, the thoughts of a resurrection of the dead, 
just seem unreal somehow. I'll tell you what, whichever battle you're facing, Jesus is the answer. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 